I went on a mission and I read a whole bunch of screenplays to try and track down uh, a style or an approach to character introductions that that really engaged me, that felt like it was the the right approach for me. Um, and, I, and I found it first and foremost with Paul Adonacio. Uh, I read this uh, screenplay, you know, and it deals with uh, it deals with mafia characters, you know, people in organized crime. He wrote a character intro for one of these guys who said, playful as a lion after a meal, do not fuck with the lion. And I thought, holy shit, I know everything about this guy. And, and I read somebody else uh, and, and another character sheets where it just focused on muddy boots, clean knives. And I thought, okay, this is, this is a much better way to get into it. Like if you're trying to figure out uh, what their behavior is, talk about behavioral characteristics. So I started creating a library of behavioral characteristics. Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I'm Hannah Camacho. Now, if you've stumbled on this episode from somewhere on the interwebs, don't forget you can subscribe in iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you have found any of these episodes helpful in your own creative journey, leaving a rating and or review on the App Store would be super appreciated. I want to give a huge shout out to the folks at Valiant Entertainment for helping to uh, schedule and arrange this week's episode. I've been super excited for several months now to interview Eric Heiserer. You may know Eric's work um, from the critically acclaimed movie Arrival. He was the screenwriter. He adapted a short story for the screen and worked very closely with the original writer uh, as he adapted it for that type of storytelling. Eric has written a number of other screenplays as well. You may have heard of them. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Final Destination 5, The Thing, Hours, Lights Out, of course, Arrival. You know, I love a good coincidence and I found it so interesting and entertaining that just a few minutes before our conversation started, I was perusing Reddit as I do regularly. It's hard to resist. And one of the top trending uh, topics in philosophy was directly about Arrival. And it was so much fun because the movie is a couple years old now, um, but it's still creating buzz. And if you want to catch it, which I highly recommend, trust me, you're not going to regret it. Um, you can find it now on Amazon Prime Video. Interviews with Eric online are not too hard to find, but I wasn't always happy with the lack of information about Eric's background, so I think that's something you're really going to enjoy hearing today, is Eric's personal story and how he navigated the world as a child and also as an adult. I really, uh, really found it interesting that Eric's parents took his own learning style very seriously and taught him how to teach himself new skills. And he chose the unconventional path uh, when it came time for him to pursue a professional career. And he learned that teaching himself tools that no one else could understand yet at that time became really valuable and also the ability to take really high level concepts and flesh them out in a visual way, uh, making them easy for everyone to understand was extremely valuable. While on the side, he continued to uh, hone his craft and what he was passionate about and looking for opportunities and ways to learn and grow. And the happy result of that is now we all get to enjoy and be a part of the wonderful stories he's now telling, which are making it to the big screen. And it's really an exciting journey that Eric's been on. So I hope you really appreciate hearing his story today. And uh, if you learn something from it or find it helpful, uh, be sure to check out the show notes because I have Eric's information there. You can reach out to him on Twitter. Let him know if you've appreciated his story and what he had to share with us today. But I'm going to get out of the way now. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Eric Heiserer. I can tell you in all honesty, I have been so excited to have this conversation. I am really thrilled that you have made some time to chat with me today. So thank you. 
I'm, I'm happy to be here. Super. For those who might not know who you are, um, I think I'd love to start this episode off by maybe you giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourself as well as maybe what you're working on these days. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, I'm Eric Heiserer, and uh, I'm a uh, screenwriter and producer uh, and occasional director. Uh, and I'm also writing comic books these days, too. Fantastic. Um, and, I, and I kind of... Um, Backed into comics through uh, doing some adaptation work of uh, a Valiant comics title. Uh, I, I was adapting to screen uh, the Harbinger uh, comic, and and I kept uh, I kept coming up with ideas for one character in particular named Livewire, um, and I was often in the room uh, talking about the movie uh, with uh, Dinesh, who's the the uh, creative. Uh, he's the he's the COO. And uh, I would I would continue to pitch him ideas for for Livewire, and he's like, "This isn't the Livewire book. This is you know this is the Harbinger movie." And and I'm like, "Well, she should have her own title." And he's like, "Done. Write me one." So so I kind of dared myself into that in a little bit. Uh, but but uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm 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 doing some work on that. I like I've done a. I've done four issues of uh, uh, a new title called Secret Weapons, and those are out. Um, and just uh, last week, a special issue zero focusing on one of the characters uh, hit the streets. And then uh, we're going to have another issue zero that focuses on a second character that comes out in March. Um, and then in the next event, that's sort of the next book that I'm going to be working on uh, in the near future is Harbinger Wars 2. And that will be with Matt Kent. Um, and that's a big event kind of uh, story for all of Valiant Comics. There's going to be a lot of Valiant characters involved in it. That's fantastic. Um, and my husband is a walking encyclopedia for all things comics. So we had a fun time uh, kind of geeking out about um, some of the work that you've done. And it's, it's really, really interesting and exciting. And I think one of the things I'm most interested in, t in during this chat today is the interviews that I have um, heard uh, you be a part of are very much heavy about, of course, the fantastic Arrival screenplay that you wrote, which is lovely because I love that movie and I'm not always a huge um, alien movie person, but I'm really excited to kind of learn more about your background and your approach and what you've learned along the way. So if you don't mind, I'd kind of love to start there, diving sure. into you were born and then what? <laughs> right. Well, um, I grew up in uh, Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, my father was ancient history professor at uh, the university there. Um, and he was the uh, the classic stereotypical absent-minded professor. Uh, he was all he was always teaching himself new languages. Uh, he would make his own flashcards, where you know, like on on one side would be german and then the other side would be aramaic so like he would learn one language by practicing another so um i was uh, i was pretty impressed by that uh and my mom was uh, a stay-at-home mom for a while until she got more involved in the community and uh and then in ed ed education in general uh and she started working for a, a uh, textbook publisher for kind of the the tail end of my youth there uh, and both of them, since they had um, a lot of involvement in the academic world, I think they understood that I was uh, a bit of an uh, autodidact in that I I don't learn nearly as well or I don't retain something nearly as well in a classroom environment. It's much better if I, if I go out and I try to figure it out on my own uh, and uh, break it and put it back together again. So... So after I graduated high school, they recommended that I just take a, a you know a couple of years to try and figure it out what it is that I want to do with the next chapter in my life before jumping into college, uh, so that I I could pick the right courses and or I could figure out what direction I want to do. Um, and uh, I think that was a, a clever way of saying that. Uh, they knew college wasn't for me because I never, <laughs> I, I never went there. Actually, I never, I didn't, I didn't go to college Good at all. Good for you. Uh, I moved down to Houston, and uh, and I 
there who uh, offered a couch to crash on. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I began uh, looking for jobs there. And I had taught myself a bunch of um, Adobe software programs back when Photoshop had a 1.0 at the beginning of oh, it. Oh, wow. Know? <laughs> early, early days, you know. <laughs> Macintosh was just uh, sort of an invading the desktop publishing market. And, uh, and amazingly enough, it's because I had those skills, and those were skills that weren't yet uh, fully developed as courses that you could take in curriculum anywhere else. You had to just learn because it was brand new. Um, I got a job working at uh, a place called Space Industries, which is a contractor of NASA that uh, that builds and uh, creates proposals for um, new technology for uh, for the for the space program. So your first job was um, specifically was it helping to craft those proposals, or what was your role there? It, my my job was essentially uh, to make the uh, astrophysicists look really good. Uh, they had, you know, they'd have a bunch of technical manual stuff and they'd have a bunch of other specs, um, and they needed somebody with design and layout capabilities and, uh, and, and, and some way to, you know, arrange the information on the page so that, uh, people who didn't have that kind of background could follow along properly. <laughs> nice. That's lovely. Did you find that work interesting, fulfilling? I found it pretty creative, you know. I thought, and it was uh, a lot of a lot of work, uh, and all, all of the actual math and science behind it was too much for me. It went over my head, but I did love finding creative solutions for things where you know the technology wasn't quite there yet. Like, for instance, at that at that date, we didn't really have a um, a good uh, uh, technology for scanning documents, for scanning illustrations or anything like that. It wasn't there. So I, I took to uh, photocopying amazing uh, uh, illustrations on transparency, and then I would tape that to my monitor, and I would just draw uh, underneath oh, uh, nice. transparency to make it work. <laughs> That's great. I love it. So when you uh, were working in this industry, how did things evolve from there for you in terms of your career? And did you make any initial maybe mistakes, if you will, um, that uh, ended up uh, providing some great growth opportunities as you um, evolved in the workplace? Oh, well, I think... It's a loaded I, question. I think, you know, just honestly, just about everything I, I did back then was a mistake in one form or fashion. <laughs> um but uh, but there were all uh, learning experiences for me, um, and yeah, I, I would say probably was my biggest mistake would be to think that uh, I had everything I needed to uh, to do whatever it is I wanted to do, you know, to to work on a story or to or to design something, um, or to even you know feel like I I uh, I had a better sense of the, the way the world worked. Uh, I did not, but. Um, but it certainly allowed me to, uh, learn some important lessons. I would say probably my favorite, uh, memory of those days were when we would get a proposal out to NASA and, uh, and we would hear that they, they've accepted that proposal. Um, there was, there would always be a giant party for everybody involved. Uh, and, and so it was, uh, it was a bunch of people who would get really drunk, and then me, who was not <laughs> of drinking age yet. I was 19 at the time. So there was ginger ale for me and booze for everybody else. And there's something just so uniquely entertaining about hanging around completely wasted astrophysicists <laughs> that would say stuff like, you know, if an asteroid were coming at us, you don't like send a nuke at it. You just paint it white. The sun does the rest. And I was like, what? What is that? It was a good time. No, no doubt. Um, so, uh, what what came next for you? I'm, I'm really, really curious to hear how your career evolved from there because you're certainly doing. Um, I wouldn't say work that's too terribly different from that. You, you're very you you approach writing in a wonderfully human but also intellectual way. I, I'm really curious to hear how your career evolved from there. Well, I used that time there at space industries and uh i moved into um uh, uh, graphic design and art direction for uh, a consulting 
group and for you know, a couple of other companies. And so I was doing I was doing visual design work uh, as my day job. And then I would start writing. Um, I started writing prose, like short stories and whatnot uh, on the side. And then eventually I, I started writing for a, a tabletop games uh, where I would submit an idea for a game. Uh, or for a scenario or a set of rules within a game, and um, I did this for a a game uh, f- uh, for uh, Cyberpunk was the name of the uh, of the game. It was back when William Gibson was a big deal, and um, the, and so the uh, the the memory that uh, stuck with me from that chapter in my life was when I submitted an idea for a uh, for a game scenario that I was very excited to write. And I got a bunch of rejections back from that. And one of them said, this is far too linear for a game. What, you, what, you, what you've written here is actually a movie. And because I was stubborn and young, I was like, oh, all right, then it's a movie. Fine. And um, having never read or uh, a screenplay or you know, thought about what it, what it takes to write a movie, I went out and I bought like uh, some uh, screenwriting software. And I, I picked up a couple of copies of what scripts looked like. Um, and I, one was a, uh, uh, William Goldman, I, I got Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid and I, and I got star Wars and they could, they could not be two more diversely like, you know, I, the structure was, and the formatting was all different. I'm like, what, is there no standard? I don't get this. What the hell? But I used all of that and I sat down and I wrote my first screenplay. Uh, and it was so terrible it was bad but but <laughs> but you it, did it, it. <laughs> but i did it and it gave me that fever it gave me that itch to to keep doing it like i knew immediately holy cow this is actually what i want to do with my life that's awesome so from there did you just keep writing until you felt like you had something that was good enough or did you just every single news story you put out did you just keep trying until you started to see some some response um, I can, I can say that like, I, you know, I certainly, uh, I had heard the tales of like where you might get an option or a sale on one piece of material. And then you, you go out and, uh, and try to, you know, make the LA life work for you and, and try to roll that into a career. I was a little bit more, and then those people don't really last, you know, if you're, you can be a one hit wonder, it could be sort of a lightning strike moment. So um, I had sort of made a promise to myself that if I get a little bit of traction on one project that I, I don't give up everything and move out right away, I try and see if I can do it a, a second time. Um, and it took um, 12 uh, screenplays for me to finally get uh, two in a row that, uh, that got a little bit of money, a little bit of heat. And, uh, and I thought, okay, now with, with two in a row here, I, I need to head out. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. And one thing I'm already loving about your story is that you always found time on the side, despite whatever your day job was, to just continue learning and doing what you really were really passionate about. And um, I love that because so often you hear people say, well, I can't make this work. I'm too busy working, you know, my day job, even though I'm really passionate about X, Y, Z. But the creatives that we always see um, really honing their craft and and eventually making it um, are the ones who don't make those excuses. So I love that. Did you seek mentors early on or um, was it more of, it sounds like you really just, you've kind of learned how you learn and dive into something and teach yourself did you did was there anyone sort of helping you along the way or was it a pretty solo process at that point um it was a sort of a communal process uh i joined a a number of uh screenwriting social groups uh including quite a few that required you to participate and write pages every month and critique other people's pages every month and uh and you learn a lot about the craft by uh, trying to be a, a good critic of other people's work. You know, if you need to say why something doesn't work, it means that you have to know. You have to know that. Yeah. So, um, and then of course, when you get good criticism on on yours, that you want to reciprocate to that writer. Um, and so I've, I built up. It wasn't really mentors, but there were peers out there 
that paid attention to my writing and I paid attention to theirs. And uh, we, we all learned together some interesting revelations about the, the craft and what, when something worked and when something didn't. Um, and that was better for me than a, any singular mentor per se. I really wasn't in a place where screenwriting is, is a, a decent um, career path that allows for mentorship the, the way that a more sort of classic art type of uh, scenario would. Hmm. Do you think in the early days um, when you when you started to see some movement on those two scripts, did you feel that the work being um, good was more important or that you already had some established relationships to even read the stories in the first place was maybe um, uh, pivotal? Or was it a combination of the two? My guess is that it's a combination of the two. Um, but that's a question that I often hear people say, well, do I need to know the right people and have something okay? Or does the work, if it's really, really good, will it truly find the right hands? Right. Well, it's a bit of a sticky wicket. I, you know, I, I will, I'll have to, I'll have to say that it is, it is a bit of both, but I will, I will, I'll elaborate on that a bit. To expand on that, I would say, um, if you write something really, really good and you don't share it with anybody, then obviously no one's going to be able to find you. Um, if you write something really, really good and you submit it to six to 10 screenwriting competitions, and those are like among them needs to be like the biggest ones, like the Nichols and the Austin Fellowship and, uh, and those others, then you're going to have professional readers who who will who will recognize something really really good right away and if you get to be a finalist or a winner in either of those competitions um or you know an occasional there are some second tier level competitions that help as well then you're dealing with a group of industry professionals that show up to read the finalists uh and that gives you access that gives you the people that you need to know in order to, to go to the next day um I feel though that that isn't really quite enough these days. So the best thing you can do is build a peer group uh, of people who are trying to break in. Uh, it, the, you know, the interesting thing that I learned is how you can, um, what's the, what's the best way of saying it? People tend to think about, I, I should befriend someone who's already made it in the biz so that they can give me a leg up. And the truth is, if you befriend people who are trying to break in, the first person who does is going to leave the door open for others. I have to say, I'm very excited to get on to the philosophy questions, <laughs> but All right. I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, how things evolved from that point once you saw some movement. Well, uh, when I saw some movement, I, so I had two projects that were were optioned and felt like there was some forward uh, motion on at least one of them, uh, and, and, uh, and a lot of enthusiasm. So I moved from Houston to LA and, uh, within like three months, uh, both of those projects just fell through. Hmm. So, so I found myself kind of hemorrhaging money out in a city where I didn't really know anybody. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, I was driving around to try and locate a friend's house, uh, to uh, to attend a party because uh, I realized I'd become more and more Hephaestus and I'd become like the hermit in his cave, just <laughs> trying to continue to write and didn't know anybody in this giant city and uh, and so I went out to be social for a while and I drove past a house that looked exactly like a house that I used to drive by in my commute in Houston. That stuck in my brain for a little while and it turned into an idea for a very original horror film about um a bunch of haunted houses that exist all across the u.s they're in the same house and they're in every suburb in every state uh and people who go into the house never come out or they they flee for their lives uh or they come out changed and they go and they track down and kill people and the people they kill are the ones who fled for their lives uh so I, then I got really excited about that, and I called up my uh, my manager, uh, and I said, I've got an idea for an I could pitch this around. And he said, well, okay, two things. Number one, people aren't buying original material anymore. All they want is something based on source material. They want an adaptation, or they want a comic book, or they want a, you know, a book or something like that. And the second thing is, uh, I'm leaving the business. 
Oh, oh snap. <laughs> so, so there I was with no manager and no other project, but, uh, and told that like, you know, I can't just write a spec script and have it sell. So stubborn me once again, decided to create uh, an online story, an epistolary story told on. Um, and use that as the quote-unquote source material, and then then pitch that idea around town, uh, and that's what was wound up being my big breakthrough. That got me in. That turned into a very large uh, script sale at Warner Brothers, and that got me um, a number of uh, projects to work on. That's fantastic, and it seems like after all that hard work and time that you put into it, the dominoes, I would imagine, started to fall, and you began to develop the connections you needed, and they saw you as um, who you are, a very talented storyteller. Um, Have you felt that from that point on, uh, getting work hasn't been as much of a struggle because you are established, or have there been interesting challenges that have presented themselves in terms of continuing work and, and not having to constantly look for work? it's an odd business in that it is um, in one of two extremes. It's either feast or famine. So um, I've either been overburdened with work, which is like the highest class problem to have, um, or it's been like, I, I can't, I can't seem to get arrested. I, the year there was a year like 2011. I remember that year very well because it's the year that, uh, Two movies uh, I wrote uh, were released. Of the public face, probably one of the hottest years that I'd had, and yet that same year I pitched on fourteen different projects, and I broke down. Oh my goodness! And I got zero. I got zero projects. It was rough, Um, but uh, rejection is a is a it's just a big part of the business, and you got to figure out how to roll with it truth no that that's fascinating it looks um and i'm super excited to kind of transfer here into more of the philosophy of how you've gone about writing these stories that people have really connected with and also one thing i love about your approach is that you're not afraid um to partner with short storytellers and transfer their stories into a different format but in such a way that it seems like your uh, relationships are very key to you and making sure that everyone's on the same page and you think through every piece and you're very thoughtful in your storytelling. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into these questions. Um, you've mentioned that you love the non-linear storytelling that you were able to dive into with Arrival. Um, and just a few minutes ago, you were talking about how you had written such a linear story that it was rejected for a game. So I'm interested to hear um, about why that was writing a non-linear story was so satisfying for you. Um, well, I guess what I like about uh, non-linear narrative uh, is that it tickles the puzzle solver in me, you know, that, that uh, it appeals to um, uh, an interesting intellectual side of things uh, in terms of uh, uh, cinematic storytelling. Uh, it's just a, uh, it's just a, an ingredient that uh, can help uh, enliven uh, the story that you, that you want to tell. Uh, and it's what I was drawn to in Ted Chang's original story. It's one of the things that I love so much about that when I read it. I was I was deeply affected by that and uh, and so uh, and so I, I think it it also helps in that um, having written a whole lot of screenplays now um, and having seen a lot of movies, it's hard to turn off the screenwriter brain when you're in a movie theater and you can start to see um, this the architecture of something way before. Uh, you know, way before it actually happens in the in the in the film. Uh, therefore, a nonlinear narrative uh, makes it feel fresh. You don't necessarily know what to expect next because it's uh, it's jumbling it up a little bit, uh, and that makes me lean in. That makes me engage. That's fascinating. So it kind of takes the predictability out of it for you. Yeah. Really, really brilliant. 
And I remember the first time I saw the film, which unfortunately I had not read the, the short story first, but it was so surprising and interesting. And my husband and I watched it in the theater together. And at the end, we just both looked at each other like, no way. And I love that. It, yeah. You're so right. It's very delightful when a story takes you by surprise like that. And I can imagine it is very uh, satisfying experience. Um, I'd love to also talk a little bit about your approach um, in terms of building relationships with the maybe fellow collaborators. Um, so if you are adapting a short story, how do you go about, do you, do you actually try to form a personal relationship with the original writer if you don't already have one? And how do you go about trying to respect their work and make sure they feel good about what you're creating? Original author uh, expects of the, of the process. Um, sometimes as a screenwriter for hire, you can come in uh, on a project that has been um, already acquired by a producer or a production company. So someone has gotten the rights to this story or this novel or this comic book. Um, and they've already had some interaction with the author. Mm. Uh, so my first, you know, my, my first venture there is to, to find out what it is that the author expects and, and what kind of relationship does the author have with the mm -hmm. producers mm -hmm. and i've been in meetings where you know the producers are like hey we got the rights to this and we'd like to have you like to have you come in with an idea and you could pitch us your take on how to make it in a film and then when i ask them can i talk to the author and see what they have to say about it and like you know is is there is there a direct contact i can do sometimes not all the time but sometimes the producers will say no we don't want to have we don't want you talking to the author um, and that and that's a red flag for me. Like uh, I understand that obviously people have been burned in the past, or the relationship can get soured. But I just I don't like I don't like walking into those kind of rooms. So um, with Arrival, it was a different beast. It was a story that I'd been infatuated with for a long time, and it took me a number of years to find producers that engaged uh, with it the way I did, that were as passionate as I was. And then once we did all of this, got on the line and to to Ted Chang and said, "Can we can we option this piece of material?" Mm. Uh, and I remember he said, "That's the story you want, really? I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's a movie, but okay." <laughs> oh my goodness! And one thing I've I've really enjoyed and appreciated hearing about. Uh, the production of Arrival is it does seem like everyone was for the most part in lockstep and really there was such a cohesion amongst everyone from yourself to the director to everyone just loving the story and so passionate about telling the story in a really compelling way is that is that how you felt about it in terms of the relationships uh, that uh, created really the story for the screen absolutely you know the the phrase is, uh, we were all making the same movie. And it sounds like something that would be far more common than it actually is. Uh, and it's just because pe different people have different interpretations of stuff. Uh, and the loveliness that the, the, su the surprise and the beauty of Arrival was everyone did have a slightly different interpretation of things, but they were never uh, at odds with each other. It was always... Uh, to uh, to plus something up. It was always to improve it and to enhance it. I think that makes it even more fun to watch, knowing that there was that cohesion behind the scenes. Um, it seems like so many writers, when they talk about storytelling, they're very excited. They love telling stories. But when it comes to the actual process of sitting down and plunking at, at the keys to get that story onto the page, they tend to really dislike that actual piece of the process. I'm curious to hear, do you enjoy the actual writing piece of storytelling or do you find it really laborious? Well, I, I, I don't particularly like it. Um, but I, I don't dislike it either. Um, I, I can tell you that I have, I have come to a somber acceptance that whatever it is I write, um, I can get close to it, but, um, I would say, uh, my, my tastes as a, as a, as a consumer of movies and TV exceeds my talents 
And so all I can do is try my best to uh, close that gap and, uh, and to get, uh, to get as best a version of what it is in my head on the page. Absolutely. Do you find that uh, I was speaking with uh, Jared Bush a few uh, months back, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. And I was really trying to um, learn from him what his process looks like. And he was talking about how in the beginning, his process is just a matter of word vomit, getting it out. And then comes the rework and the rework. Do you tend to have that type of process? Or do you really like it to be sort of uh, somewhat um neat in its first draft and first form um you know if i get down to the script stage it's, it's already been through some sort of outline or beat sheet process and before that it's probably been um you know an index card or you know something i found a, uh, some image on the uh, internet that that evoked a certain emotion um, I've gotten to a place, I've evolved my, my start with the question of like, how does this make me feel? Um, and then, um, um, how did, how did it do that? How did it make me feel that way? And then the last question is, um, what's the most cinematic way of expressing that? Mm. Uh, when, when you feel, um, like perhaps there's a deadline looming or if you are ever struggling with, um, sort of coming up against a brick wall or feeling like a piece of the story isn't working. What do you mm -hmm. tend to do to try to set yourself up for success in terms of getting through that, especially when the pressure's on? Um, I still have a, a trusted uh, network of peers that I can send material to and get uh, reads and get uh, advice on. Um, and I have, uh, I, you know, I have married a, uh, a playwright and TV writer and, so, um, so we're, we're both professionals here in this house and we trade stuff with each other constantly. Uh, and we share the same manager. That's actually how we met. Um, and so, uh, as, as she loves to tell people that whenever you hire one of us, you're kind of getting the ghost writer of the other one as well, <laughs> which isn't entirely true, but, um, but it, it's, uh, you know, we, uh, we help each other out as much as we can. Um, that helps. And, um, and then I have a, a whole bunch of little hacks, little life hacks that I do to, to break through whatever is uh, blocking me, whatever obstacle it is. Uh, it's a bunch of little exor writing exercises, you know, because if it's not, uh, if it's not um, geared toward actually writing, then I am t I'm, I'm pretty much lying to myself and I'm procrastinating instead. <laughs> That's really awesome. What's what do you think your favorite hack has been at least recently? Oh, probably it's write the absolute worst version of the scene. Oh, ooh, Just that's get, really interesting. I love it. Get it out of the system. Be as <laughs> be as horrible <laughs> as possible, and uh, and that's, then that's so that sounds almost fun. I love it. It, it is. And it, and, it, and it shuts up the voice in the head saying like, oh, this isn't this isn't any good. Uh, well, good, because it, it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you feel is the uh, biggest misconception about what you do? So when you're interacting with folks maybe who aren't in the industry and they learn that you're a screenwriter, um, what what assumptions do you find people make about your line of work that may not be true? I, I just really don't have much value. Um, oh dear. it's the actual act of writing where the, where the real value is. Uh, but it's, it's what gets me in weird conversations where, um, you know, someone will say, Hey, I've got this great, uh, movie idea. If I give it to you, we can split the royalties. Or, oh my. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, like I got into this business cause I have 5 billion ideas. Like I don't <laughs> need another idea. Those are a dime oh. a dozen. <laughs> You know, it's how you execute it that matters. And yes. if you're not willing to like put in the time, the sweat, and energy into your own ideas, then you're telling me exactly how uh, how much value that idea has, which is zero. Wow, that is um, really uh, sad, yes. and <laughs> and also you don't want to be writing about stories you're not passionate about and probably didn't have a, a part in creating in the first place. Wow, I can only imagine how those conversations feel. Um, one thing that I particularly love about your work, um, and some things I've heard you speak about in other interviews 
is your attention to character development. And if a story is academically interesting, but not character driven, it does tend to fall short. I know that's at least how I feel about stories. Um, and you've expressed that it's important for characters to have personal biases, which is really brilliant and true to life. Um, so how did you come to this realization that your characters should have those personal biases? Um, and how did you sort of evolve into uh, making that a really crucial piece of your storytelling process? Um, I would say it it began with something almost mundane for me, which was um, character introductions. Uh, I had found a few years back that I was uh, put off by uh, character introductions as I would read in screenplays, um, and I would find uh, that I I did. I committed the same kind of uh, mistakes in my own writing for a while, which was when you when you introduce a character, uh, you know, I I would tend to, you know, introduce uh, a male character with sort of intellectual characteristics and a female character with physical characteristics, and I I didn't like that at all. Uh, also because uh, in both cases of information helped me later on uh and so then i i i went on a mission and i read a whole bunch of screenplays to try and track down uh a style or an approach to character introductions that that really engaged me that felt like it was the the right approach for me um and i and i found it first and foremost with paul adonacio uh i read this uh screenplay donnie brasco and um, you know, and it deals with uh, it deals with mafia characters, you know, people in organized crime. And uh, he wrote a character intro for one of these guys who said, um, "Playful as a lion after a meal, do not fuck with the lion." And I thought, "Holy shit! I know everything about this guy." That's um, brilliant. And, and I read somebody else uh, and, and another character sheets where it just focused on muddy boots, clean knives. Ooh. And I thought, okay, this is, this is a much better way to get into it. Like if you're trying to figure out uh, what their behavior is, mm. talk about behavioral characteristics. And so I started creating a library of behavioral characteristics. Uh, and a good way to start that kind of library is start listing out all the things that your family does that annoys you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Those come to mind so readily, right? <laughs> and they're very specific. And I, I can bet you five bucks that a reader somewhere out there will know exactly who that person is to talk about. Um, and and I realized this is where I wanted to start a character. And I go from there. It's like, what behaviors do they exhibit that lets you know right away the type of person they are? Mm. And when and, did when did you kind of come to this realization? Was this when early on in your career, um, in terms of when you started to see some movement in the screenplay realm? When did you start incorporating that approach into your work? Probably around the mid two thousands. So it it was I was still fairly early in my professional career, but I had done a lot of writing. Uh, I would say in a, a subpar standard. Uh, before then tell as a consumer when I see a story that I know has taken that into account it comes off as so much more interesting and genuine and three-dimensional it's just really really interesting to me and sort of segueing from that I'm really excited to hear um, your answer to this question uh, screenwriters versus novelists <laughs> so in what uh -huh. way do you see screenwriters trying too hard to write like novelists? I feel like that kind of uh, pairs with what you were just speaking about. And, um, you know, how does that, how does that, um, what's the word I'm looking for, affect their screenplay in a, in a negative fashion? Uh, well, there are exceptions to every rule. Sure, sure. Um, but I can say um, screenwriters who write in a non 
there are a lot of words on the page. Uh, make for sort of a burdened read. It takes it takes you longer to read that type of script than it would be something that's lean and mean. And the longer beyond sort of the normal runtime of a film that it that the reader has to spend on your screenplay, the more the less it feels like a film. Oddly enough, there's a psychological effect at work where if you sit down and it takes you four and a half hours to read someone's script because it's very dense, then they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna walk away with sort of a negative reaction to that. Hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. I was just thinking a little bit about how your father was a professor and and so fascinated with language, and I love that that language, of course, was a key piece to arrival. Um, and I've heard you talk a little bit about how you went about uh, exploring the language of the aliens, not only uh, maybe how it sounded, but, but really especially how it, how it appeared and looked. Could you kind of talk to me about how you uh, went about that exploration? And I know you had to do some, some uh, tricky things to, to also represent it in the script itself, but I'd love just to hear you talk a little bit about how, how that process was and what you found really fun about it. Oh yeah, that was, yeah. So I, so as I said before, one of my pet peeves is, uh, being too wordy in a screenplay, being too novelistic. I don't want to slow down the reader by uh, jamming up a bunch of words on the page. Uh, and in fact, my, my gold standard is, uh, Walter Hill. If you pick up a, a script by Walter Hill, you realize that this man manages to do like a poet in so few words, be very evocative of a, a larger, you know, a larger experience. Uh, and his draft of alien, uh, was, uh, my Bible for a long time, um, until it got replaced by Michael Clayton. So, um, I got to the moment when I was scripting a story of your life, which is the Ted Chang story that became a rival. Um, and my first draft of that script, uh, I got to the point where I was to describe the, uh, the logogram, the, uh, the alien symbology and the language they use there. Um, and I found myself getting more and more wordy in that area so that it was just a chunk of text in the middle of an otherwise elegant uh, page. Uh, and, uh, and of course, and I complained to, uh, I complained about it to my wife over dinner, which she has to deal with because, you know, marriage. And, uh, uh, and, and I, I said how frustrated I was and she said, well, okay, don't show me in the writing what it is that you're frustrated in an illustration of what you're talking about. And I, I doodled out something and I said, this is really, you know, what it is. And she says, okay, can you, can you just put that in there? And she, and I was like, you can't, you can't insert graphics into a, wait, <laughs> can, can you, can you insert graphics? <laughs> uh, and the answer was no, like no software at the time allowed you, uh, screenwriting software allowed you to do that. But again, remember I'm stubborn. So I was like, well, I'll find my own way. And, uh, and I wound up just creating a bunch of blank spaces in the script and then when I exported it to PDF, I edited that PDF by inserting the uh, the uh, heptapod, my version of the heptapod logogram, which is sort of an early prototype. Uh, and I had that in like five or six different places throughout the script. Uh, and I would have to manually insert that every time I had to do another. Goodness. It was so much extra work on my part. <laughs> I, was, I was such an idiot. But, uh, but I did it to myself and, uh, and it actually helped. That's fantastic. And did you did you find that that did anybody specifically call that out to you early in the process that they found it really interesting that you added that in there or? Uh, Denis did. He thought it was interesting. Nice. Uh, and uh, you know, and a, and a few other people along the way thought it was uh, evocative, but uh, but I didn't get too much comments on it. Is there anything that you've seen recently, uh, TV, movies, um, listen to podcasts, who knows what it might be that you're finding really interesting and inspiring? Um, right now, I've been doing some uh, pleasure reading, which is like, you know, where I'm not having to put my professional cap on. Nice. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a follow-up book to, uh, to The Six of Crows. It's called Crooked Kingdom. It's, uh, by, it's by Lee Bardugo, and I love it. Fantastic. I'll have to check that out. 
And uh, is before we wrap this up, because our hour is coming to a close and I want to be respectful of your Saturday, um, is there anything coming up that you're a part of that, you've, that you'd like to plug that we can keep an ear out for uh, that you're involved with? Um, well, other than on the comic side of things, um, uh, Owen's issue, which is the issue zero, that comes out in March. And then um, there's a, an, an adaptation of a novel that I uh, that I wrote called Bird Box, and uh, they we're about to complete uh, principal photography on that, and that, that one stars Sandra Bullock. Oh, exciting! That's fantastic. Yeah, I hope that that'll be out later this year. Fantastic. We'll keep an ear out for it. Well, Eric, cool. this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for spending some time chatting with me about your story. Absolutely. Thanks for hosting. 